Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Thank you for being on Sustainable Minds. Today, we're talking with Mark Ross. So, Mark, you're a corporate social responsibility professional and environmental attorney with over 30 years of experience in public, private, and nonprofit sectors. You're an organizational leader, experienced legal counsel, and CSR consultant with expertise in ESG project management, environmental law, emphasis on water, mining, and remediation, nonprofit management, fundraising, risk management, grant writing, corporate transactions, and community engagement and strategic partnerships. Yeah, I'm exhausted just hearing all that. (laughs) (laughs) And also, what a time to be all those things. (laughs) You're you're currently the head of impact and ESG at Vincente Setterberg, a cannabis law firm, offering a full suite of services, legal, corporate policy, regulatory, and research to all types of plant-touching marijuana and hemp businesses from cultivators, retailers, extractors, product manufacturers, distributors, and testing labs, ancillary businesses, investors, trade association, and government bodies. That's true. All of that's true, Gary. You guys, (laughs) you got got big arms that you you got this whole thing converted. Previous to that, you were the chief investigator at Needle Consultants. And previous to that, you were director of community outreach at Harvest Health Recreation, now truly an industry-leading vertical integrated cannabis company and multi-state operator. And you was focused on delivering optimal customer experience, increasing access to cannabis, helping patients and customers to live without limits. Uh, you got your law degree at Penn State Dickinson Law, uh, a BA from the same university. I'm tired. Just read that, Mark. Oh, welcome, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Rocket. I feel like I've lived a, a few <laughs> lifetimes in just hearing all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome to Sustainable Minds. So, going to start off with something that you posted and we all heard the other day. Biden pardoned all those convicted of prior felony charges or convicted in the District of Columbia of simple marijuana possession, Biden called on governors to follow suit and pardon those convicted of similar state charges. So put that in context for us. You said, whoa, big news. Huge. (laughs) It is huge huge news, Gary. And before I go further, thanks so much for having me on uh, Sustainable Minds. I really appreciate it. Great to speak with you and Rocket today. You know, the news last week was certainly remarkable. It's the first time even though President Carter had dabbled with the idea of decriminalization back in the 70s, it's the first time in 30 years that a president of the United States has, has done anything with regard to cannabis other than criminalizing it even more. And so it is important to note that this is coming from the bully pulpit of the president of the United States of America. It's also important to note that 6,000 plus lives will be changed by this. People that had been formerly convicted of cannabis possession at the federal level that had an incredible amount of 
obstacles placed in their way as a result of that, whether it was educational funding or housing, jobs, a whole host of obstacles that that can tag you with. The flip side to that is there isn't anyone in federal prison right now for possession only. So nobody's getting out of jail. According to the last Prisoner Project's analysis, there are still thousands of people in federal jails right now for cannabis convictions, whether it's intent to distribute usually or, or something along those lines. And so we still have you know, cannabis casualties in federal prison and even more so at the state level. So the second part of that announcement was that, and President Biden can't do much about this other than encourage governors to take a look at these policies in the state. Most cannabis convicts are in jail at the state level. It dwarfs the number of cannabis prisoners in federal custody. So it's definitely remarkable. It's definitely historic, definitely impacts you know, 6,000 lives and their families. But there's a lot more that the president can do. And I guess the third part about that announcement was that he has asked uh, the FDA to take a look at the scheduling of cannabis, which is right now a Schedule One right. drug with no known medicinal properties, which we all know is not true, yeah. at least according to the 40 states that have medical cannabis programs in place. So it is important, and hopefully it's the first step to remediating the war on drugs and making up for all of that insanity that cost this country hundreds of millions of dollars and and hundreds of thousands of lives. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that this is the first step, but let's not be too rosy about what the step was. Yeah. What kind of step was it for actually the cannabis business? Yeah. I mean, there was there was a momentary blip in the stock market for cannabis companies that had been taking a beating over the last several months. And so there was that. But of course, the next day, cannabis stocks declined again. So for, for the cannabis businesses, it doesn't affect them except that it's the first step towards hopefully a total decriminalization of cannabis, a total descheduling of cannabis, an ability for there to be tax reform, an ability for there to be banking, and for cannabis businesses then to thrive. Yeah, well, that's a pretty important first step. <laughs> it is. All that. You know, I would love to learn more about what you actually do as the head of impact and ESG at Vicente Cederberg. Sure. Uh, so I was brought into Vicente Cederberg a year and a half ago with really two purposes. One is to serve our clients with regard to counseling and consulting around environmental, social, and governance. So help cannabis companies, hemp companies, psychedelics companies get their ESG house in order. And sometimes that's just helping them get basic corporate responsibility principles yeah. in place, helping startup companies find their mission, their vision, their values, how they're going to engage the community, their philanthropy programs, their social impact programs, their sustainability programs. The more sophisticated multi-state operators that already have all that in place, helping them get prepared or prepare themselves to issue formalized environmental health, environmental, social, and governance reports. And so that covers everything from air, water, waste, pesticides, packaging on the environmental side, how they engage their employees, health and safety, wages, 
how they engage communities in which they operate on the social side, and then having good governance policies in place. So that's part of my job. The other part of my job is helping this very quickly growing law firm, Vicente Cedarberg, which has been around now for 12 years. So it's an adolescent with uh, with eight offices and uh, over 100 employees, over that's 50 growing. attorneys. That's growing. It's growing to become a, you know, become a grown-up law firm. Yeah. And so getting a handle on its strategic philanthropy, getting a handle on its employee engagement, its community engagement, its pro bono work, uh, its sustainability work. And, and we just were about to issue a baseline sustainability report for the law firm, like a lot of larger law firms do. We've applied for B Corp certification, so we're hoping to join the 40-some U.S. law firms that are B Corp certified, mm -hmm. uh, which creates a triple bottom line to evaluate the business. So a lot of internal function as well as external counseling and consulting of, of our clients. find it interesting that you talk about employing, you're an attorney, you talk about employee engagement, and you advise people around vision, mission, and values. That's all in the wheelhouse of work that we do around corporate brand. And I'm glad to hear somebody else is talking about the importance of that with companies. Now, you obviously in the cannabis business, but uh, the, that's very important infrastructure for a company. And done right, it's, it's, it's going to serve them well. So, well, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, no, it's like... When I look at mission, vision, and values, it's kind of like that line in Big Lebowski. It, it ties the room. It's like the rug ties the room together. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really is. It, it really is the foundation of how we build good ethical business practices. Yep. And if you don't have that mission, vision, and values, then you don't have a strategic plan. You can't integrate those principles throughout your entire company, and it comes off as being inauthentic. And those are all three kisses of death to any kind of corporate responsibility program or a more advanced measurement program around ESG. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I want to get personal here for a second. How did you arrive here? When you were young, what interested you? And did you always want to be a lawyer? And what got you into this field? Yeah, no, I wanted to be a doctor at one point. I loved the show MASH. And then I realized very quickly in high school when I got into AP Calculus and lasted about three days that uh, <laughs> med school was not going to be in my future. And so I turned to law school. I liked writing. I liked reading. I liked research and uh, went off to law school with the idea to be an international human rights attorney. And very quickly, I found out by going to Dickinson, which at the time was not part of the Penn State system. It was the oldest independent law school in the country, mm. but in the middle of Pennsylvania, that you really couldn't become an international, despite the fact that they had an international law journal, one of the mm. few in the country, you couldn't become an international lawyer from Dickinson. And I very I, I got into an internship, actually an externship with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. And I worked there for uh, two semesters and then they asked me to stay on into my summer and then asked into my third year. And next thing you knew, they offered me a job as a litigator coming out of law school. And so I was really excited about the environment. It's always been something in my DNA. And I did that very early on in my career got married, uh, joined a large law firm in Pittsburgh. So I went into the private sector and then very quickly got recruited by Alcoa, which at the time in 1998 was the largest aluminum company in the world with mm -hmm. a chemicals division, a consumer packaged goods division, and you know building products division, rocket fuel, forging tire, forging wheels, and you know flat rolling airplane wings and all this exciting stuff. And I was brought in to be their worldwide water attorney. And then also that morphed into being their, the company's remedial attorney, one of four environmental attorneys for the entire company worldwide. Wow. And 
at the tender age of 30. And I thought I reached the, the pinnacle of my career at that point. And 9-11 happened. And uh-huh. I stood there watching the planes fly into the buildings. And nobody in, the, in one of the lunchrooms at Alcoa, nobody was really asking, why is this happening? It was all like, we got to get those guys. And it started to create a more of a, of a, div- a division between me and where I wanted to go in my career. And I decided that I wanted to have more of an impact on the environmental community for young people to ask the question, why? Why, 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 why? And how can we make this better? And so I created a national environmental nonprofit. Uh, And I I was a huge music fan. And so the idea for the nonprofit was to serve the music industry, artists within the music industry, so that way they could take their environmental activism to the next level. And it wasn't going to be a Greenpeace sets up tables at a concert and says, we want you to care about this issue. It was going to be, let's develop a relationship with the artist, find out what they care about, and then advance the issue up to and including litigation on their behalf. So I would use my environmental litigator background and Mm. my community impact background. And we did that for 15 years. It was called Rock the Earth. And we sued polluters in the government on behalf of rock stars. And then we educated concert goers and activated them at about 250 concert dates a year with some of the biggest names in music. Bon Jovi, Bonnie Raitt, Ozzy Osbourne, Foo Fighters, uh, the Allman Brothers Band, a bunch of hippie jam bands, Jack Johnson, and I did that for 15 years. And I, and frankly, I had never run a company before. I'd certainly never run a nonprofit before. And while I was doing the environmental legal work with some other environmental volunteer lawyers and the technical work with some volunteer environmental technical consultants, a lot of my job was fundraising and member development and coordinating outreach. And I just burned out after 15 years of doing yeah. that. Yeah. It was like having a child 24-7 and I wanted to have a child. I wanted to have a real child. Um, <laughs> and once I once once I had a real child, it became too much of a, a strain. And so it became. We transitioned the organization. We interviewed a number of nonprofits that were interested in picking up the brand and the assets. Legal conservation voters picked it up. Mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to go back to the private sector, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. Ironically, here I am at a law firm, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to do the nonprofit stuff, but back in the private sector, which led me to corporate responsibility. And, and then real briefly, in, into that process, a couple of key people here in Denver, in government and industry, really high-ranking people said, you should look at the cannabis industry. Nobody is really doing corporate responsibility, sustainability, community engagement, employee engagement in a very thoughtful, strategic, ROI-driven way. And so I started to network my way into the industry. And then sure enough, I found there were very few people doing that kind of work in the space. And I started to write about it and then started to speak about it. And then I started to get asked to speak about it and interviewed on podcasts and speak at conferences. And then in 2019, Harvest Health and Recreation called me and said, and at that time, they were they were the largest cannabis company in the United States. They had just gone mm-hmm. public. And uh, they had heard about the work that I was doing, the people that they brought in from alcohol and health and beauty products, consumer packaged goods. And they brought me in to scale their community outreach corporate responsibility program. Wow. And I was, and there I was on my way in the cannabis industry. Well, let's talk about the cannabis industry here. Got a couple of questions around this, but the cannabis industry is growing rapidly, right? With global sales expected to reach $33.6 billion by 2025. Uh, though the industry has seen significant improvement, particularly around legality, it continues to face many challenges. So I got some kind of series of questions 
uh, around this. Uh, I want to ask, the first question is going to be, what are those challenges facing the industry? Then, then I want to follow up specifically around ESG. So first, tell me about the uh, challenges that this business is facing, because I read about it all the time, and it just seems like it's very volatile, turbulent, uh, a lot of ups and downs in the business. No question about it. There are challenges facing the industry. I mean, there have been challenges facing the industry from before it was a legal industry. The adage, I'm happy to say, as the meme says, you know, we'd like to congratulate drugs for winning the war on drugs at this point. <laughs> you know, I think the jury is out for the most part across America that cannabis has a medicinal value for a wide variety of ailments. And unfortunately, the studies are just now starting and coming in because of the federal illegality issue. So the biggest challenge is that it, you know, this is still a federally illegal substance under Schedule 1 that prevents a lot of things from happening. And so generally, some of the larger issues are banking, although the larger operators have figured out ways around banking. It's the, really the smaller upstart social equity operators yeah. That, that have a challenge with banking. It's a section of the tax code called 280E. Probably the biggest challenge to the industry, the biggest drag on the industry, the biggest drag on profits and investors, which in essence was established in the 1980s. Drug dealers that were flying in drugs from Central America and South America were writing off the planes as business expenses. And so the IRS implemented a new rule, 280E, which prevented anyone involved in a Schedule 1 business to take anything other than cost of goods sold as a business expense. Mm. And so those employees that you want to give health care to in your dispensary, that's, that's not a cost of goods sold. Wow. Um, charitable donation to a community group, that's not a cost of goods wow. sold. In essence, what it means is that the effective tax rate for a cannabis company is 70 to 90%. Now, you tell me what other business could operate with an effective tax rate of 70 to 90%. There was an article wow. that came out last week that 10 of the largest cannabis companies are millions of dollars in arrears for taxes. And what they have found is that it is cheaper for them right now to pay the penalties and interest to the IRS than get loans to pay off their tax bill. <laughs> yeah. um, no. And that... They have very little. They have very little runway. If they were to pay their tax bill today, one of them would be out of business, and most of them would have less than a year of operating capital left in the bank. Yeah. And so, 280E needs to be. We need tax reform. That is the biggest challenge to the industry. the The third challenge is really remediating communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. And most of those are communities of color. The war on drug has decimated these communities. And these folks really were the backbone to the illicit market, the legacy market, as we call it, in cannabis. And we need to give those folks not only a leg up into the industry and move them from the legacy market to the legal market so they can do what they do best, which is cultivating, manufacturing, and selling cannabis, but also remediate those communities beyond those cannabis businesses to bring them up to standards where they would have been had we not you know, engaged in an 80-year war on the people, not just the communities, but the people themselves. 
Yeah. Uh, and so those are some of the biggest challenges that the industry faces mm-hmm. right now. There's others, of course. I mean, the fact that we don't have federal legalization means that every multi-state operator needs to set up operations in each and every state. It's kind of like different countries and they can't have they can't have interstate transport of product. And so we're doing crazy things like, I don't know, growing cannabis in warehouses in Maine as opposed to outside in, you know, the Emerald Triangle in California, where it may be more sustainable. You know, we're doing crazy things like that. Uh, we don't yeah. grow bananas in warehouses in Maine. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Well, you know, that that <laughs> that leads me to the follow-up question. And I find this when I think about the cannabis industry, I think of a smaller industry. And I'm so glad to hear that you are talking to people about sustainability and how to think of themselves through maybe environment, social governance factors. So I, I want to break it down. What are the challenges the uh, cannabis industry is facing in ESG? Let's talk. And you were just talking about some of this, you know, you were just you were just mentioning this about the environmental aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, overall, there there are three main headwinds facing cannabis companies from getting involved in environmental, social, and governance, measurement, reporting, and being compared to some of the third-party frameworks out there in the ESG world. The first is financial. Cannabis companies are incredibly strapped, as I just talked about, Mm -hmm. for the variety of reasons, mainly 280E. There is a lack of knowledge along a lot of the cannabis operators that there are actual positive impacts that can come from measurement and reporting ESG. So sustainable efficiencies that can be established for one, risks that can be managed and mitigated for two. And then the third headwind right now with regard to ESG in the cannabis industry is this new, in the last six months, political headwind where ESG has been demonized by generally those on the right as some kind of socialist agenda to undermine capitalism. But then you also have people like Larry Fink at BlackRock and Jamie Dimon to JP Morgan Chase that say, that say, this isn't socialism, this is capitalism. It's risk mitigation, it's operating efficiencies, it's saving money, saving towards the bottom line, it's talent attraction, it's brand differentiation. All Companies those things. That all these things and companies that do this and do this well outperform other companies as has been shown in the stock market. Yeah, and correct. so you've got this knowledge, you've got this knowledge headwind, this financial headwind, and now overlay that with this political headwind and try to get that into an emerging practice in an emerging industry. And those are some of the challenges we have right now. On the sustainability side, we also have this other challenge. You have legacy operators or quote-unquote master growers that have been doing it their way for 20, 30, 40 years. Same lights, same procedures, same nutrients, Mm -hmm. same pesticides, same watering practices. And now we're trying to scale that. And it creates an environmental sustainability nightmare. When the positive aspect, we've seen a lot of R&D around lighting that really has been driven because of indoor agriculture, mainly cannabis. So mm-hmm. you have more efficiencies coming on board, whether or not they're affordable or not, depends on your CapEx and what you're willing to spend in terms of the cost of capital to build out an environmentally sustainable cultivation facility. Right. So you've got a knowledge deficiency, then you've got the financial restrictions and, and challenges that prevent us from being more sustainable. Flip side again, more states are now, as more states are coming online, like New Jersey, like New York, 
they're requiring more sustainable practices. And so I'm optimistic that this industry will not only develop the tech like LED lighting to be more sustainable, Mm -hmm. which will in turn drive down carbon footprints, but you'll also have more states putting more requirements on operators that will enable them to be more sustainable. But right now, you know, it's a patchwork of state by state, operator by operator mess in the sustainability area. Yeah. Another thing I thought was really interesting, I, I read um, in a post on the VS website, and you you explained this. It says cannabis companies may be selling themselves short by cutting programs such as DEI and social equity from their overall company focus. I didn't yeah. know that they were had DEI programs. So, you know, that's good and bad, right? Well, the publicly traded companies sure as heck better have a DEI program yeah. in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form because they're trying to attract talent. And you have leadership in senior HR positions that know the companies that are committed to creating diverse and inclusive workforces outperform companies that don't. They simply do. There's the diversity of views, a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of thought that comes into an organization that allows that organization to outperform other companies. The problem is some of these cannabis companies are so strapped right now, whether it's the tax burden or the fact that they're underwater and their quarterly earnings are in the tank and their share prices are in the tank and they're just trying to keep the lights on. And as my old boss at Harvest told me, when your company is on, when your when your house is on fire, you're not worried about what color the paint the the paint is on the walls. And you're <laughs> certainly not you're certainly not trying to put an addition onto the house. You're trying to put out the fire. And so a lot of that that thought happens in the cannabis industry and some of the larger operators. And we've seen it across a number of companies that have had had successive quarters of negative earnings where they cut back on some of these programs. And it, they are selling themselves short because they are a pathway to greater efficiencies. They are a pathway to risk mitigation. They are a pathway to creating more successful businesses. But there are some hard decisions to be made in the C-suite, and I don't sit there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So building on that and something that you spoke about earlier in in advising cannabis uh, businesses, you spoke about vision, mission, and core values. How do you get them to understand these, these notions, these concepts? We know you and I believe that uh, these are really important for, for companies, but, you know, uh, they may start off having different priorities. Yeah, you know, in the cannabis industry, we often see it start with a community engagement program because in competitive licensed states, there's usually a, a community engagement module yeah. uh, that says, how are you going to proactively and effectively engage the community in which you're going to operate mm-hmm. uh, or some language like that? And so usually they jump ahead to that. And it usually becomes a mishmash of what we in the CSR world call confetti giving. There's no strategy to it. There's certainly no ROI on it. It's a yeah. one-time deal, and yeah. it, you know, co- frankly, comes off as crass and, and inauthentic. And so, I try to drive them back to the fact that in any other industry, if you have, you know, a very strategic and integrated and authentic CSR program, you will be more effective and more successful. But that needs to be built on those mission, vision, and values. Otherwise, it's not strategic at all. And so that's that's how you tell the story. You need to have those foundational pillars in place 
before you move on to the next step. You got you got to crawl before you run. And too many companies, when we are moving at a speed of dog years in the cannabis industry, too many companies jump ahead to get their doors open and sell cannabis and try to make a zillion dollars. And that's just, it's not the model that works anymore in yeah. cannabis. It may have been the model 12 years ago when cannabis mm-hmm. passed here in, or 10 years ago when adult use passed here in, in Denver, but it, it's no longer the model in the real world of cannabis or in any kind of consumer packaged goods or, or uh, health and beauty product or or alcohol or anything like that anymore. Well, I mean, partially because ESG is such a long-term commitment, it's ongoing. I mean, it's evolving. And, you know, if you aren't showing your progress against some strategy, as you say, it's just a, it's just a one-shot thing that's giving it away and going nowhere. Yeah. And the other thing with cannabis is we have a mostly millennial workforce and we have a mostly millennial and Gen Z consumer base and patient base. I mean, granted, we're getting a lot of baby boomers involved on the medical side, my mother being one of them, mm-hmm. uh, who would never imagine touching cannabis mm-hmm. 30 years ago ever, uh, or maybe hanging out with their friends, but, but for a while, yeah. not. And so because we have a mostly younger demographic that is working for our companies and are consuming our products or our patients, you know, those folks care deeply and passionately and authentically about these environmental and social issues. They want to support companies, whether working for them or supporting them by making their purchases. They they walk with their dollars or or Mm -hmm. they invest in the companies that they believe in. And, uh, And so that's why it's so important for cannabis companies to be so strategic and so authentic uh, about these issues. So related to that, I think, on the website, I saw you guys post talking about your partner's Chakruna Institute. There's an event integrating psychedelics into American culture and law. And I go, wow, you know, I've read a lot about uh, psychedelics recently. There's been <laughs> articles. I mean, uh, 60 Minutes did it. I've read about microdosing. Uh, I don't know very much about it. Tell us about this psychedelics industry, American culture, and law. Yeah, that event was last week. It was a very successful event. It's interesting. VS is certainly, we have a psychedelics practice, and we've had it for several years now. What I find most fascinating about the psychedelics industry is, is that I believe there will be federal legalization of various psychedelics before there is cannabis, honestly. Yeah, really? Um, just because they've been able to study them over the last several decades. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got a ketamine that, that, is, that is already a licensed product in use for a variety of ailments. Yeah. Therapy, exactly, in, very, in, a, in many states that's already recognized as that. We have MDMA or ecstasy finishing up its third round, its phase three trials with veterans that the organization MAPS has been leading that charge. And then you've got, you know, Michael Pollan from The Omnivore's Dilemma with his book, How to Change Your Mind, and his series on Netflix, How to Change Your Mind. We've seen a tremendous amount of movement on psychedelics and the, the truly miraculous medical, psychological impact they can have on folks with PTSD or trauma or addiction. All of those elements are 
right now we've got a mental health care crisis in yes, this in this yes, country in in this world but more so in this united states of america and, and colorado ranks near the bottom frankly uh, in the united states of 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 health care mental health care and so if we can find new ways that that are safe but also recognize that there is an ancestral responsibility to indigenous communities to recognize that these medicines mm. have been used for generations yes. in the indigenous communities. So we need a method to legalize, decriminalize, but we also need to regulate uh, because we don't want, say, anyone saying, I'm a shaman, come into my facility mm. and we'll roll the dice. You need to have regulated opportunities as well as a pathway for the indigenous communities and the religious communities that that take part in these ceremonies that truly are rituals and ceremonies to be respected as well. So it's a fine line about how do you legalize and put guardrails on, safety guardrails to a business model, while at the same time allowing for this grow, gather, and give model. That's why we've been supporting the what's going to be on a ballot initiative, it is a ballot initiative in the fall here, in the state of Colorado, uh, the Natural Medicine Health Act, which will hopefully provide both pathways for greater usage of psychedelics. Initially, just psilocybin on the regulatory side of things mm-hmm. uh, and the administration side of things, but there are other psychedelics that are also going to be decriminalized under that legislation. And Oregon has already done it statewide. And you've got other states that are talking about it, like yep. Texas. Yeah. So when you start having when you start having red states like Texas talking about psychedelics, and, and even in Florida as well, you know that there's a pathway here for psychedelics that may very well be expedited mm-hmm. over cannabis. Well, you know, at the beginning of psychedelics, I think if I recall right, a lot of this came out of research and call and university research, and I wasn't. Timothy Leary, a Harvard professor, mm-hmm. and, and he was, and various people like that, and they were. So this was serious research science stuff back then, you know. So I could see how that may position it differently than you know marijuana here in California. It was we, so hard. We used to get it from Mexico all the time, yeah. and you know, it was so hard to, for researchers to even get it and be able to research with it for so many. For years. sure. Before. No yeah. question about it. So, and 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 uh, reading, doing my homework on you uh, yesterday, I get this, I get this uh, news flash from the L.A. Times, and they're running a series called "Legal Weed Broken Promises," and this one episode of the series ta- is a black market hiding in plain sight. There's a struggle to contain illegal dispensaries. Unlicensed shops are a hotbed of crime and violence. That's not helping the legitimate side of the, of the house. No, it's not. I mean, California is somewhat of a mess. Um, high taxes, high regulations, which is normal in California, and you know, a, a decades-old illicit market, uh, legacy market that's been operating with its own cultivation facilities, its own manufacturing facilities, its own brands, legacy brands that are very popular, cannabis dispensaries that are, that are illicit market dispensaries delivery. Uh, you've got a very mature cannabis market, illicit market in, in California, and a lot of headwinds preventing the legal market from breaking through there. Now, you know, once federal legalization happens, there may be some greater opportunities there. And they've taken measures to, to reduce taxes, 
and reduced fees to get into the into the marketplace. We're going to see how New York does it. New York has learned a lot from what happened in California. And so I'm optimistic that uh, a number of the legacy operators will come into the legal market in New York State. But it's hard. It's, it's certainly a challenge. We don't want to start another war on drugs 2.0 <laughs> against folks and put more people in jail for cannabis. But you've got entrepreneurs investing millions of dollars into cannabis companies that are battling it out with the illicit market. And again, 280E tax reform would go a long way in helping level the playing field. Not having taxes that are greater than cigarettes or alcohol would go a long way in leveling the playing field. You know, removing additional fees and and, uh, requirements for cannabis companies, such as um, you know, local payments to cities for increased police presence or increased police enforcement doesn't do the legal market any good to level that playing field. So there are a lot of headwinds, a lot of challenges, a lot that could be remedied by thoughtful minds, especially when 75% of Americans believe cannabis should be legal, at least for medical purposes. You know, we need to stop politicizing this issue and get everybody together on that. This is a human rights issue. This is a medical issue. And this is just a lifestyle choice issue at this point where Americans are are speaking. But as usual, the politics in Washington are preventing us from making headway on this and and so many other issues. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. so many. We often work with, uh, we work with Fortune 500 companies, but we often work with mid-cap and small-cap companies that are, we consult with them and we have a creative services for them that are just entering the sustainability ESG world. So my question is, what advice would you give a company that's just trying to get their head around their approach to sustainability? You know, if they're an SME that hasn't gone through the process of figuring out those fundamental pillars that we spoke about a few minutes ago, that's where they need to start. Figure out who they are. What what do they stand for as a company? What do their leaders believe in? You, know, you can do that on your own, but it often helps to bring in a third-party facilitator that can be a neutral party to help draw out from the leadership what they care about and find where that intersection is in that virtual Venn diagram of what the company should stand for. Going beyond that, getting into more of a formalized ESG analysis you need to start with materiality. And materiality is is basically what a reasonable investor would find decision useful in making a determination whether to invest or not invest to a company. And so you need to find what your material pain points may very well be, where your risks are, and where your opportunities are as a business, and then start to measure. Because unless you measure it, it's not going to matter. Yeah. See, we measure what matters to the particular company, where the particular risks are, and, and then start to create goals from there. So build your foundation, figure out what's material to your company, start to measure it, and then start to continuously improve upon it. Yeah, terrific. I'm going to wrap up with a question here. And this is kind of unique for you, maybe, because you're in this burgeoning industry. And the whole notion of sustainability and ESG is relatively new. So from from where you sit, what does this look like in five, 10 years? Where are we going to be? I mean, yeah. through your lens, what do you what do you see here? It's an emerging practice in an emerging industry. But 
Uh, I've already seen, as I mentioned earlier, this industry is moving in dog years. And that's the big joke in the cannabis industry. Every year is like seven. I'm exhausted yeah. from the set, from the, the, the six I've been in it. But I've seen it change quite a bit. And, and right now, I'm seeing the larger operators having a strong desire or need to start to measure and report their ESG metrics. And they're doing so, recognizing that they're operating in Europe. And Europe is requiring climate yep. disclosures and right. DEI disclosures. Canada is is also going to be doing the same, and the SEC is also going to be doing the same, starting with climate. And so the publicly traded companies are going to need to do that. And in Europe, it's even pu- private companies need to do it. Mm-hmm. If you want to work with a publicly traded company and be in their supply chain, which a lot of smaller operators in cannabis are in that position brands and, and cultivations and delivery services and social use venues, those larger companies are going to demand to see your ESG metrics because you are in their supply chain. Right. They're going to want to see what your carbon footprint is because it affects their carbon footprint. And so the smaller operators are going to need to come along as well. And then we're also going to see this desire, again, driven by employees and customers to start to support the companies that are leading, not the laggards. Uh, They'll always be the ones that are cost conscious, that are going to go for the low cost alternative where the company doesn't care about those fundamentals. But I think as we are an evolving society with new generations that care deeply about these issues, overwhelmingly, we're going to start to see businesses start to react appropriately. And so when you ask me about five or 10 years, I think we're going to start to see, first of all, all the publicly traded companies reporting their ESG metrics and setting goals. We're going to start to see many of the smaller private companies. We're going to start to see more conscious brands, especially in, frankly, a conscious industry like the cannabis industry or the psychedelics industry or the hemp industry, start to make inroads with regard to ESG reporting, metrics, programs, community engagement. And we haven't even touched on what hemp can do to replace you know, fossil fuels with plastics or pulp with paper or fabrics and all the concrete can replace concrete with hempcrete. There are so many different uses of hemp that are more sustainable than the way we've been doing things as human race wow. that are being developed right now with, you yeah. know, with funding from the Department of Agriculture and, yeah. and private foundations and whatnot. I think five, 10 years, we're going to start to see an entire you know, hemp industry displacing oil, displacing you know, wood and in paper and displacing um, some of the cotton in fabrics and and polyester plastics in fabrics. We're going to displacing concrete in building construction. So we're going to see an evolution with regard to this same plant, lower THC, different name, hemp, replacing all of these other products as well in the next five to 10 years. Wow. Exciting. This has been uh, more interesting than I yeah. imagine, <laughs> Mark. Thank you. If not enlightening, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Learned you for a lot. sharing your knowledge and point of view on this. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. Thanks to you and Rocket for having me. I really appreciate yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, it's Perfect. been fun. Yeah, Take all the care. best. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds. 
exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. 